Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. It is September 15th, 2023, and I am here with No Film School tech editor, Yarrow. Love all tune in. I like to write about tech. I write movies and I like to make movies. All of the above are things that I love. And one other thing that I love is SNL. I used to <laughs> watch it while I would get ready in college. And it would be sort of like it, people would listen to music, but I'd be watching SNL, which I think speaks a lot to me as mm-hmm. a person and, you know, why I didn't fit in in my sorority. But <laughs> we had the pleasure of speaking with SNL editors Chris Salerno and Ryan Spears. These are the guys who edit together things like the trailers we see and the digital shorts that we see on SNL, which apparently are no longer called digital shorts. They're called pre-records. I feel like that was... That was their own internal uh, label language. For it. Still- digital shorts. I mean, I I like yeah. grew up on the Lonely Island digital shorts, and it was such a a pleasure to speak with them about their process. We talk about like what got them into editing, but also what got them into editing for SNL, which is such a high pace, high speed, high intensity environment. And what I really loved about this conversation is how. There was this balance of Chris and Ryan being very tech-minded and tech-oriented because you have to be able to like fix Mm -hmm. things on the fly and move so quickly. Mm -hmm. They basically have two days to turn around these, these edits to the point that they're going to the live show. But also how much these guys are trusting their instinct. They are making strong choices early on that they're not married to. They can pivot so quickly, but they, I think, are moving so quickly that they don't have the opportunity to really overthink, which is such a gift. Like, you, Yaro, you know I'm like in the process of doing this sort of Fast and Furious ultra low budget feature right now. Yeah. And we're moving mm-hmm. so quickly that sometimes I don't respond to your slacks in time and I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> but also no, okay. so quickly that we just have to make decisions and follow our mm-hmm. gut, which is yeah. freeing in a way. So yeah, I, I yeah. just love that about yeah. this conversation. I had a similar experience in New York doing a web series and my partner who co-wrote and was starring in it was, you know, when we got to the, cause this was their biggest kind of project to date. And when we got to set, things were going wrong and they were like, no, like we have to, and I'm like, cut it, cancel it, done, move on. Like you get into the zone during those moments of like, you know, when you're, when you're down to the wire and I don't want to use this term, but like for lack of a better word, there's a gun to your head. You just you just kind of follow your instincts. And then at the end of it, you come out with something and it's beautiful and it's fine. Like learn to trust yourself is learning to trust yourself is very important mm-hmm. in this business and in creative, creative pursuits, because for the longest time, we're on our own creating, writing, thinking, and even like directing on set, like you're with your own thoughts. You can kind of communicate with other people. But in the end, you're you're kind of on your own. You know? Yeah. 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 The the thing that we're going to be talking about and we're going to play a clip of the trailer in a moment here but is it's a sketch trailer that they made for SNL this season and it's a uh, parody of Mario Kart in the style of The Last of Us um and they mm-hmm. are nominated for an Emmy for outstanding picture editing for a variety show for this particular sketch and it is just so 
well done. I highly recommend you just pause, watch it really quickly, and then get into it. Yara, I want to regroup with you on the other side of this podcast on some learnings, some more learnings and takeaways from the conversation. Yes. But let's dig into our conversation with SNL editors Ryan Spears and Chris Salerno. HBO's The Last of Us is a hit, proving a video game can become a prestige dystopian drama. This spring, HBO is doing it again with another iconic game. It's been 10 years since our kingdom fell. The only thing we have left, hope. I have important cargo I need smuggled to Rainbow Road. People say you used to drive. People say a lot of things. You got a name? It's a me. Mario. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thank you so much, Ryan and Chris, for joining us on the No Film School podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having having us. I was telling you guys before we started recording that the best way to start a morning is by watching Martin Short. And I went down a rabbit hole of a lot of SNL shorts, including ones that you guys have worked on. And I'm so excited to talk to you, especially because you're we're going to be talking about and unpacking a sketch that you made, a digital short that you made that is nominated for an Emmy. So congratulations. Yeah, congrats. Thank you. Thank you so um, much. Okay, so before before we dig into the the nitty gritty of working on SNL, how did you how did you both get your start as filmmakers? I started kind of getting interested in doing kind of film and production stuff in like high school. My the school I went to had like a kind of it was a magnet program. They had a really good in-house kind of like production team called CatCom. This was in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I really enjoyed working, you know, in, in video and stuff like that. Started trying to do most of my like school projects as like recorded projects and stuff. And I just kind of gravitated towards editing at that point. And then I was lucky enough to go to NYU and, you know, I, I, I liked writing and directing, but I also kind of focused on editing as like a, as a uh, skill that I could, you know, work in kind of find some work and stuff like that and really started loving it a lot and kind of 
went from there and, you know, I was lucky enough to intern at SNL my senior year at NYU, so it was like 2006, 2007, and kind of was always in the Broadway video family after, after that. I bounced around from Broadway video when they used to have a post house. I got to work as an assistant on the first season of Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, jumped over to Above Average, which was their kind of like online web comedy platform. And then after that, kind of went freelance and had the opportunity to kind of hop back over to SNL first as an assistant editor and then kind of worked my way up to being a film editor there. And for our listeners who may not know, Broadway Video is the production company started and, and led by Lauren Michaels. So it's sort of like mm-hmm. a tree, a web of comedy content that overlaps a lot with yep. SNL folks. How about you, Chris? And I, similarly to Ryan, I, you know, when I was younger, maybe even younger in like middle school, I would kind of have a lot of fun stealing the family's TV cam and just shooting videos and with my family, my friends. And I think I quickly realized that it never really felt like movies until I would put them in a computer and put music to them. And I think that just attracted me to the concept of editing and post-production. And then, you know, in high school, I started getting really into movies and really spent a lot of time kind of trying to understand what made a movie the way it fell in TV shows. And and then, yeah, I think that that led me to go to film school, which is where I definitely learned the kind of a lot of the networking skills and the some of the more technical skills uh, that are kind of required to to start. And after school, I just luckily I grew up in uh, the suburbs of New Jersey. So I was right near New York City where it was there's a lot of production going on. So I was able to get some PA jobs, AE jobs. And a friend of mine who was editing at the show actually at the time, Sean McGrath, reached out to me when they were in a pinch for some assistant editors. So I got to join the show as an assistant editor and it's kind of trial by fire. And I guess I didn't burn. So <laughs> I've been there ever since. So let's talk about those sort of first days that you both were on SNL in these AE roles. What was it like to enter that world? <laughs> it's a very steep learning curve. I don't know yeah. about you, Chris, but I think for most of us, our first ones are typically overnights. I was kind of I think it was the Octavia Spencer episode in like 2017 was my first one. And I was assisting on, I can't remember the name of his sketch about like Hillary bros basically trying to hit on a woman at a bar. And I was just sort of like left there kind of by myself overnight. And it's just like, just sync all this footage and organize it into timelines and stuff. And I was there till, you know, I was there till like three o'clock in the morning working on it. And I didn't screw up and they liked that. And I kept coming back and not to making mistakes and kind of eventually worked my way up through that. So, you know, it's, it's definitely the throw you get thrown into the deep end pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And it's similarly, I was, I, my first episode, I believe was the Donald Glover episode, which was towards the end of the 2018 season. And same thing. I just kind of got a call on a Friday that was like, there's a shoot tonight. It's going to be an overnight shoot. Do you want to come in AE? And I was like, Sure. You know, and it was kind of something that I wasn't super, maybe I, I, a little bit of my fault, but I wasn't super prepared for, you know, I, I kind of came in at like 10 or 11 on a Friday night and uh, I worked on the sketch friendos, which also not to get too, you know, nerdy technical, but was pretty we complicated in terms technical. of mixed frame rates. <laughs> That's <laughs> it was the perfect, perfect place for it. But it was, you know, it was mixed frame rates, mixed resolutions, mixed media. It was just pretty much the 
as wide of a net as you could have cast as far as like the type of media I was receiving at 3 a.m. on Saturday, being one of the only people in the in the building. So I think I quickly learned that you really have to adapt and just keep moving and kind of trust your instincts. And I, same as Ryan, luckily kind of got through it. And when the morning came and the editor took it over, he was happy with what I gave him. So I've been back since. When when you look at like who you're surrounded with, do you notice any through line of the people who are able to hang in there and thrive in that environment? Is it that they're go with the flow? Is it that they're, you know, they thrive off of the the energy, the adrenaline rush? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, I think it's a mix of things. I think, you know, I came in at a point where like I had already done a lot of editing work, but I was willing to kind of like take a step back from that and and organize and learn what I needed to learn to try to work my way up. So I think it helps to already have some editing work. But, you know, we've had people who don't have a ton of like editing experience, mostly assistant editing experience come in. And I think it is really just kind of like learning to go with the flow, um, you know, Focusing on the work, not just like focusing on like, oh, you're at SNL. Like it's just, you know, it's like it's a fast pace, but it's like still, you know, it's still like anything else. Um, And uh, just kind of being very meticulous and on top of things because we don't have a lot of room for error mistakes. So double checking your work, always checking with the editor or you know, the first assistant editors, like, what can I do? What can I help pull? What do you need? Things like that. I think that those are kind of common traits for for people who succeed there. Totally. Also, I think there's an aspect of, you know, everyone comes to the table with kind of their own workflows and their own things that work best for them. But I think the kind of the workflow that's set up at the show is, was, is only set up because of years and years of trial and practice. And I think kind of accepting certain facts as far as how things are done is kind of important not to say that you know suggestions are not taken because they always are but i think you know a lot of time things are done for a reason and it's usually for speed and for efficiency and i think you Mm -hmm. some you're learning those Mm -hmm. ideas quickly is super helpful Mm -hmm. the that that actually is a perfect segue into the mario kart trailer it is just the perfect pitch of nailing the tone of this of parody i mean it is basically the last of us meets mario kart you have uh pedro pascal as mario and the way that the sketch unfolds and reveals itself to that moment which we will play in the we which we've played in the opening of this podcast to the moment that pedro pascal turns and says it's a me mario like like there's so much integrity to nailing the the truth of this particular sketch. So let's talk about the specific workflow of this sketch. Like at what point are you looped in? At what point do you know that you're getting you're doing a Mario parody trailer? And and then of course you had two days to actually make it. So take take us through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this one, you know, the idea had been bouncing around for a little while to do a big kind of like video game-esque parody, probably Mario Kart, and it was going to be dramatic, but I think the idea written by Scooter Seidel and Mikey Mikey Day, they had we didn't necessarily know we were going to have Pedro for it, but then when he was put on the list for upcoming hosts, like it, it seemed like a perfect fit. So, you know, that was one that actually 
you know, typically the famous, you know, schedules, like things are pitched on Monday, they write on Tuesday, they pick on Wednesday. They worked on that one a little earlier. So it basically was picked, I think, by the end of the day on Monday or Tuesday because of the massive scale of the piece, which bought more time for the VFX team and for our incredible like set design team to do what they need to do. Cause you know, a lot of that stuff is they, they had to pre-build all those backgrounds and stuff like that. You know, it's all very heavy 3d. And then like the set, like, you know, most of the, the, the road there at the beginning when they pull off, like that is, that is practical. They built that, they built this, the cubes and stuff like that. Some of the signs and all that. So they got a little bit of extra time, but we could still only shoot on Friday because of Pedro's schedule and, you know, because they're using that extra time. So we shot on Friday and then just start cutting as soon as we're we're getting footage from set. And, you know, we were lucky enough that week that that Chris, who works with another film unit on the show, that unit was dark that week. So he was available to help me in any way that I needed. And so I was able to have him kind of start putting together that intro sequence with the, you know, where we use some clips from The Last of Us and try and build that up so that I can build up on top of that and and go from there. So, so yeah, I mean, for as far as, po- as the edit goes, like it was the same amount of time that we typically get. And, you know, we start, we start, we started talking, we had a meeting on to Monday or Tuesday when it was that they picked it and over zoom and Mike Diva and our DP Lance Coons, they shot a, they basically shot an animatic for that racing sequence, which I think you can see in some of the behind the scenes videos that we've put up. And I started cutting with that basically. And then as those shots came in, I was replacing them, adding more sound design, tightening them up. But I mean, they pretty much shot to that animatic. So, you know, shots of little like matchbox cars dry, like, you know, were replaced by VFX shots and stuff of Mike sitting in a, in an office chair doing this, you know, gets replaced by like Mikey as Luigi and everything. So yeah, that was kind of the process, at least early on with the with the edit. And for yeah. those at home, Ryan mimicked driving in a office chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, to, ahead, I mean, to Ryan's point. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was going to say like typically since they're shooting Friday in an Upper West Side studio, so footage is then we actually have a hardwire kind of server that footage is being uploaded directly to us and to our assistant editors who are you know syncing organizing putting things together then for us to start cutting while the shoot's still happening so it's pretty important that you know when the first set of cars come in which might be the first hour or two of the shoot we're already kind of up and running and able to present something you know as soon as possible so the whole mo behind or ethos behind how you are thinking about the edit is is looking at efficiency and speed so you can preserve that quality. How have you modified your tools, whether it's Premiere Pro, shortcuts, or anything else that you're using to to channel that outside of outside of having this hardwired server that you're uploading and which sounds awesome? Yeah, I mean, like for me, when I first started using Premiere Pro, which was sort of when Final Cut 10 came out, I decided like, I'm going to learn the basic, like the default 
Premiere Pro keyboard shortcuts rather than, because I originally learned an Avid and then did Final Cut for a little while and then went over to Premiere. And I wanted to learn the Premiere keyboard shortcuts because I thought that was going to be the quickest way to get to most of the features that they want to highlight. So over time, I've, you know, I've modified the keyboards to things that like I am, you know, either having to go to a menu a lot or it's something that I'm having to do a bunch of key, you know, shift command, all that and moving those to like just a single key, stuff like that. And, you know, we at SNL, we use kind of a common system too, where our file structure or bin structure matches our file structure. So, you know, it's easy to kind of find things quickly. And yeah, I mean, I'm, we're always kind of thinking about speed and efficiency. You know, I've, I've some editors there have you used like Wacom tablets and I've, I've tried that before, but I just felt like it wasn't, I wasn't fast enough with it. So I kind of switched back to a mouse and stuff. So it's really just kind of about like, you know, if it serves speed there, it's, you know, it's good to go and you kind of work it into your workflow. Speaking of workflow, um, since this was kind of a really VFX laden digital short, can you like elaborate a little bit more about how you prepped for the handoff for After Effects or was it just, you know, hey, we're sending you the whole timeline, here you go, enjoy? Like, because I know sometimes when, you know, you used to pass off things to color, it'd be like strip everything, just send us the raw mm-hmm. raw footage. You know, it, how did how did that work for you with, with After Effects and Premiere Pro and, and did that integration help at all? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the benefits for us using Premiere is we can hand that stuff off to our graphics team very easily. I mean, they use After Effects for the comping, but then they use a whole range of other plugins and applications to kind of do other things too, like, you know, Cinema 4D and Blender and stuff like that. A ton that I I do not, I don't know all of them. They, you know, they're, they're kind of in their court, but like, but what we do is my we all have first assistant editors. My first assistant editor, Noel, is sitting in the room with me all day. And as we are locking shots, he is taking just that chunk of the timeline. Like he'll, I'll save my, I'll save my project. He'll open a copy of it, take that chunk of the timeline and export that as a sequence into a folder for the VFX team to grab. So they're able to grab things very quickly, bring it into After Effects. We've as much as we can try to narrow it down to like, these are the assets you need. Um, and then they, they render stuff out. We don't do dynamic linking back in just because it creates too many risks with, if they start making a change, that's not done yet when we have to export or, you know, if there's a, a linking issue, like we avoid that by just, you know, they'll, they'll export ProRes 422 or ProRes Quad 4 with Alpha. So, you know, we'll have to manually lay that back in, but it also creates sort of a safety net because sometimes, we get changes that like maybe we don't necessarily what was good before and they've tried to do an experiment that sometimes works sometimes doesn't so we kind of are able to see what's in there and then because it's already a prores file we don't have to worry about there being any issues with exporting i mean we also started using like a notion a decent amount to help because you know for a first guess like this there could be up to 60 70 effect shots and just to keep everything tracked and to keep it in order like we have to come up with pretty specific, uh, you know, naming conventions and just ways to very easily slot in these these VFX, especially as the edit's constantly moving. And then on top of that, our, all these sketches are professionally colored. So the color process with VFX, that adds a whole kind of another web of 
connections that have to be made. And mm -hmm. one interesting thing is that uh, a VFX artist who has worked here in the past created a script that actually allows them to link colored footage into their After Effects projects without That's affecting, so cool. you know, rather yeah. than rather than sending out the entire VFX shot to color, it will allow mm -hmm. them to ingest the colored footage in a really quick way and then put that out. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's really cool. I like that. And, and I yeah. feel like with your really fast, fast-paced workflow, you kind of have to have that reliance on like older techniques where it's like, oh, we'll render it out and send it instead of using kind of all the new, the new bits and bobs because, you know, like you'll work on something, send it off, like, no, we'll tweak it. And then everything kind of down the pipeline just gets shifted. Yeah, totally, I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. And, and like speaking to that a little bit more, you know, what were, I know like each project has its own kind of challenges, but what was the biggest one? for the last of us mario kart the last of us and and after that i, I do want to go back to friendo because i really want to know more about mixed frame rates that's always been fascinating to me and <laughs> but but yeah yeah i mean i think the biggest challenge was just the number of vfx shots that we had and how um, many did you have we, oh gosh in the final sequence oh um, chris said like 60 right probably 60 I think. yeah i mean yeah. that's an approximation but that that Doesn't yeah, sound. you know, because even some of the shots that look like they're not VFX, there are some set extensions going on, things like that. It was just figuring out that that workflow and kind of figuring out how far we could push things in the amount of time that we had and getting renders back in time and stuff and kind of figuring out like, okay, this is like we can't we can't keep editing things at this point. Like we have to go to dress rehearsal in two hours. So we have to give or an hour or whatever. So we have to give the VFX time, team time to sync up with where we're at and give us stuff so that we at least we don't have any like when we go to we because, you know, we export cut for dress rehearsal, which is dress rehearsal starts at eight. A piece like this is going to be up early in the show. So even then, like we're exporting for dress rehearsal, probably around eight, I think. So and we don't want to go to dress rehearsal with any blue screen, green screen, any of that. Like nothing can look complete. It can look rough. It can, it, it's often not colored, but we don't want the audience during dress rehearsal to see like someone standing on a blue screen background, even if it's something that I'm having to like pull a key in, in as a backup, pull a key in premiere and throw whatever, you know, just flat JPEG yeah. or PNG plate behind it, you know, just so that, because that just trips up an audience yeah. too much. So 
it's really kind of like back timing from that and seeing how long we have to do certain things. And then the other big thing actually with this too was the the score was a was a big juggle because we're constantly changing timing and it was really important for that piece to have this score that included those familiar notes from mm-hmm. Mario mu- you know, music from the Mario games. So we were working with a composer for the show, Eli Bergerman, who does a lot of the stuff for the live show. And then, you know, every couple of weeks, he'll he'll work with us on the pre-tapes, depending on the needs. And of course, this is one where it's like you can't find that stuff in a stock library. So we had to lean on him a lot to kind of piece it together. And we were getting stems. We were getting full things, full tracks. So it's like a lot of back and forth with him, too. So the biggest challenge is, yeah, I mean, we're putting together this piece that Typically, in like a commercial world or, you know, a a show world, you lock the cut and then you have rounds where you can do the VFX and the score and all that. That's all happening Mm -hmm. at the same time and all funneling through me and Chris and Noel. And um, so it's like communication is is key there. And um, and so, yeah, that's that was the biggest challenge, I think, with this one. So based on this lean workflow, what do you think editors who are focused on more long form content can take into into their practice? I don't know if it's if it's as technical, but I think something that this show has really ingrained in me and really helped me kind of understand about myself like a more philosophical way of editing is just trusting the instinct that you have because kind of at this show you kind of you have to learn to trust what you're initial instinct to the footage is because you sometimes don't have time to have a second instinct so to really just trust that when you're putting it together you're doing the best that you can at the moment and then so that you can continue to move on i think is important because obviously in, in long form and if you have if there is no deadline and i've i've fallen to this but sometimes you just keep going over the same thing and over the same thing and obsessing over small details without moving on and that can really trip you up and not allow you to see it in a bigger picture yeah, you can you can cut things to death by just letting it kind of live in front of you. Like, oh, it's fine. And just moving frames at, at at some point, left and right. Exactly. Or even like <laughs> switching takes, being like, oh, maybe this take work better. But we just simply don't have the time to worry about that, especially on our first cut. So it's important yeah. to just you know trust that you're there for for a reason, and the the, the decision that you made in your head was made based on the instincts that you've gathered. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's like making strong choices and even, you know, and not being afraid that you're going to have to change them because, you know, we have we, we make strong choices and change them all the time at SNL. But, you know, it's putting your creative foot forward in that way. I've also found working on longer form projects, having come from SNL, like we I think we have a tendency to put a lot more polish into our first cuts because we don't have time to go to like a sound design. So we're adding a lot of sound design in our first cuts. And we're, you know, mocking up effects and stuff like that. Like I often work with clients and they were expecting very bare bones first cut. And they're like, oh, this is like way more advanced than I thought it would be for a first cut. And I think that helps, you know, that helps get a lot of stuff done very quickly so that you can kind of focus on on those those details. It gives you more time to focus on those details. I think also like we've learned too how to quickly show options. I mean, we are the number of times that I've been like working with people 
and they tell me something and like I'm already like doing it and then I play it back and they're like, oh, wait, <laughs> oh, that's great. Like they don't they don't they don't even realize I'm in the process of doing it because like that's kind of what we have to do at SNL. We have to like listen while they're giving notes and kind of already start working and present it very quickly or show them takes very quickly, you know, go through all the options like I, I, I lean and I'm really been liking like the auto transcribe features with Premiere mm-hmm. recently because like. I can search all the time someone's set a line very quickly and just show, you know, show the directors or the clients like all the options and we can kind of quickly see like, oh, okay, the one that was in there, that was the best. Or, oh, this one has actually a little bit more of this intonation that we actually like. And we we can do that in like five minutes rather than having to scrub through and find stuff. So I've always been curious about how that AI supported feature of, you know, listening to the dialogue and then transcribing it and then kind of having it there ready for you to use how that's going to be used in the narrative world. Cause I knew, I knew like, Oh, the documentary editors are going to just salivate over this. And I was like, but how is it going to work narratively? But then I guess for this, it's like the perfect solution, especially when you have multiple takes and you're doing the same bit, you know, the same dialogue. And because I know in, in, in longer stuff, you know, sometimes the different takes can be different. And so can you kind of elaborate a bit more on how you leaned on to that AI tool? Yeah, I mean, so for a long time, we've been doing line by line sequences, which for anyone who doesn't know is literally every single time someone says a specific line from the script from every single take our assistant editors have lined that up in a master sequence. Mm-hmm. So like our, and our, you know, our, our, the, the writers on the show like to see all of those options and like to pick the best, you know, pick what the, the best take and, or what they think is going to work best with the rest of the takes that we're using. So we have to be able to show them that very quickly. And we still do, we still do that, but you know, I think the, the transcribing tool helps us. Sometimes there's shoots that it's not super dialogue heavy, so we don't necessarily do the line by line. So we'll transcribe to find things quickly. Or maybe there's improv that happened on mm-hmm. set. That helps a lot too. You know, I mean, I've worked with the Please Don't Destroy guys before and they'll they'll improvise things a bit. And, you know, it's always been in the past, I feel like it was always kind of a thing of like, oh, I remember he said this like someone said this it was after we did this take but before we did these takes and you have to kind of go hunting around and when i was a assistant editor like i would be doing that while the editor would still be working and sometimes it wasn't there or sometimes they would misremember the word that was said so you're hunting for it and you're not finding it but with the transcription tool you can start typing that stuff in quickly and like hop to it and like is this it no, how about it was it like this? And you like try typing different things and you find and they're like, oh, that's that, that's it. That's it exactly. So that helps us find that stuff so much more quickly and it helps us make those decisions quicker. You know, it's either we see it and it's like, this is fantastic. This actually is really funny. Or we see it and it's like, nah, it's not as funny as I remember it being on set now that I see it like on camera. So that's it's been a huge help with with stuff like that. I think that's one of the most interesting things about like designing any scene or cutting any scene for comedy like what is funny on set may not translate usually doesn't translate and so let's use that as like a segue into cutting for sketch 
so many of our listeners come from the sketch world. Like I've, I've talked on the podcast many times about how I got my reps in doing a Channel 101 show, which had a little bit less of a tight deadline, but it was still once a month. And we were like jamming through these things. And we do some of the things that you mentioned, including having like sort of pre-scored things that we could use and then put in and and temp score with that, with our composer. But, you know, the art of sketch comedy and editing for sketch specifically is, you know, an art and a science, I'd say. So how do you, how do, how do you both approach that? I mean, I think what one aspect of it that really can't be overlooked is that at SNL, obviously these are the great, some of the greatest comedic actors around. So it's almost, you know, a double-edged sword where we're we're looking through takes and every single take is hilarious, you know? So that, and then it becomes a thing of like, you're almost splitting hairs of what's funnier Mm -hmm. and what works better, which obviously is a luxury and like the best problem to have. But I mean, that being said, you know, it's like, it's almost sometimes feels like whatever you put together will work. So then it becomes finding what works best for the intention of the piece. And at SNL, we, you know, especially on the the pre-tape side of things, there's so many different kind of ways they can go, whether they're more straightforward dialogue sketches or uh, commercial parody or music video. And a lot of times we are able to rely on, you know, generic conventions pretty heavily, especially like, you know, on the Last of Us parody, it was definitely a huge help to be able to rely on kind of pre-existing film language that Mm -hmm. helps us get across the, the joke because you don't want it to, you know, you don't want the comedy of it to get muddled by, by the style or by the form. So to be able to rely on these things that already exist and, you know, comment on them and kind of play with them a little bit, it helps to focus then on, you know, what's the performances that work together best. And yeah. And I mean, I like it's sometimes it's really just finding, you know, just what the intention of the piece is at its heart. And that will kind of help you help be a guide throughout the whole process. Is that a conversation that you have before you even get to the edit uh, where you're like, the way that this sketch will work is if we rely on film language and like that is the parody or the way that this sketch will work is if we, you know, land on, you know, Chloe Feynman's reactions as hard as we can over and over again. Um, Like when does that conversation happen or is it just in your DNA now? (laughs) So a little bit of both. It typically happens like with, yeah, yeah. Like I think it typically happens with the directors uh, at some point. Um, and after you've done a few, yeah, you can kind of see like this is this is going to be more of a genre piece or this is going to be more of a character piece. Um, and you'll have a conversation with the director at some point about like what are we what are we kind of focusing on? And yeah, you know, I mean, I think that it's it's a thing too where. With a sketch, like with working at SNL with with sketches, like everything happens so fast, too, that I think like as an editor, uh, I find what's helpful for me is like I like to try to make strong choices early on, but also need to be able to like let go of things very, very quickly because there's a lot of there's a lot of creative voices in, in the room and you know, you have to experiment and show all these options very quickly to, to everyone. And sometimes you land back at where you, where you were, you'll show takes and they're like, that's the take. And then you go back and it's like, that was a take that was in the whole time. And they're like, Oh, okay, great, fine. And other, other times, you know, there's something specific that they were going for on set that they thought of between the last time you talked to them or they thought up on set. And 
it hasn't been communicated to you directly yet. And then they come into the room on Saturday and they're like, oh, actually, we were thinking a little more of this. So it's like, OK, great. And then let's go in that direction and and support that idea. And, um, you know, I've talked a little bit before about like um, I did a little bit of uh, improv a couple of years ago and I kind of find some of the tools that I learned from that to be very helpful with editing comedy. It's, you know, the idea of yes anding things like, you know, like what ever they they come to you with you're like oh great like i like that and then here's a little bit of what i can try to add to that and you know it's 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 a very like collaborative experience to to try to land on on something that is going to be is going to work as best as it can so yeah and also with with sketch i think at snl especially just because it's such a well-oiled machine as far as kind of the scheduling of each show you really want to make sure the joke is told in the most efficient and kind of cut down manner that it can be i don't want to say like overcut but it's, uh, it's real timing is really important in the sketches that we do especially mm-hmm. just you know making sure there's no fat and there's nothing that doesn't need to be there and we're lucky enough to have the dress rehearsal to help us to help guide us as far as what can be cut so basically the way it works is we you know we cut all day friday and saturday and then eight o'clock there's the dress rehearsal and we'll get to see in real time a reaction to the sketch and sometimes jokes don't land. And if everyone feels that, you know what, maybe the joke won't land, then we can cut it. And, you know, we have that time then to make those adjustments. And it just seems like a lot, most of the time, and I don't, I don't want to prescribe it to all the time, but it feels like kind of the more condensed version it can be a lot of time mm-hmm. helps the comedy flow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm smiling because you're yeah. like, then we have that time to do it. And I'm like, you have uh, 40 minutes <laughs> yeah. to do, do it. Right. Again, you're yeah. like, you you probably are able to move so quickly and 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 you're all and you're watching for what that is. So yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's so so impressive. I, I love this in in contrast to our interview last week with Kurt Lobb, who's the editor of Blackberry, who, you know, also has a lot of experience in the comedy and improv world, but like the way that he likes to start editing scenes is he finds like the gem, the gold nugget of the scene and then reverse engineers the scene for continuity. And a lot of that time that comes from mistakes or little hiccups on set, but that's like that style. And this, like you guys are almost, of course, embracing the, there's still this flexibility that you have to have, but you're you're, it, you're it's all about execution and, and moving quickly and being able to, to pivot when needed. And it's so, so impressive. What, what advice do you have for emerging sketch editors and, and filmmakers? I think like watch a lot of comedy. I think like when you get the opportunity to do genre stuff, really embrace the genre to the extent where maybe the first cut, you kind of push it a little, little further than maybe it needs to go ultimately. And then you can kind of dial it back. I think What's always served me well is is like look for the takes that speak to you the most. When you when you do your first cut, don't think too much about like what the what the director or the client is is gonna wanna see. Because you can always you can always change that stuff with them, you know, like and you might find things that they didn't see, like we talked about on set. Like, you know, there are things that people think are hilarious on set, but you get into the room and it's like it either is I find often stuff that like 
is found really funny on on set is like too inflated to put into the into the piece. It's a little too long. It's a little too drawn out. Or there's just not supporting reverse angles to to make it work. So you might find something else that they totally glossed over, but like it's it's a unique moment. It's a mistake or something like that that you like a lot and you can build a scene around that. And then, you know, be willing to to be flexible and and keep supporting the new ideas that kind of come into the room and have fun with it, you know? Yeah. Everything Ryan said is true. And, and also, I mean, one thing that's overlooked and feel like in editing in general is sound. And I think sound in the comedy world can be so important. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's subconscious. You might not even realize why something's not funny, but it might just be because, you know, the silences are too silent or there's not enough you know, sound cues just don't hit at the right moments. And a lot of times that's something that can really kind of subconsciously guide the comedy and guide the performances. And, and I think at, and at mm-hmm. SNL, like we just, we sound design the hell out of everything. So like we really, really try to spend as much time focusing on what the kind of the ambience is, is as the sketch is happening. Yeah. I mean, I think a perfect example of that was the, um, the Austin Butler sketch, the um, the one that's kind of modeled after the um, Jimmy Stewart movie, um, what's it called? Wonderful Life. <laughs> it's the cl- the classic Jimmy Stewart Christmas Wonderful Life. Yeah, mm. um, we we went back and forth a lot on what the sound design for that should be like. I mean, we had worlds where <laughs> we landed on a world where, like, out when he's outside being in a, like when we're outside in his world, it's that like very swelling kind of like classic Christmas movie stuff and then when we're inside it's completely dead and you just hear all the forks and knives on the plates and stuff like that and it works so well but we didn't specifically know that that was going to work at first and we tried we you know tried a bunch of different options and we tried you know inside we hear a little bit of music on a radio and outside we don't hear music at all or we hear like a droney kind of thing more menacing tried some of that stuff and we just kind of went through a bunch of different options and we landed on this one and we think this this feels the most right to us let's see how it does during dress and it you know obviously there was the audience responded really well to it so we just kind of enhanced that a little bit more for for air i like hearing you guys talk about learning kind of through this gauntlet of snl because i've worked with editors before where they have done the cut and they're like now sound now color now something else and that that's not my job and because you two are in such a unique environment where everything has to be done yesterday you know for lack of a better <laughs> word you have you do those little things and it spices up the delivery and i think you you give stakeholders an opportunity to see the final product instead of kind of imagine what the final product would be i think that's really cool mm-hmm. i think you know Either go work at SNL or do more than your job description, I guess. Create your own SNL. <laughs> yeah. But I do wanna yeah. I do wanna ask one follow-up about advice. Cause I said I would go come back to this. What, Chris, what would your advice be for working with mixed frame rate? Especially because well, you're delivering to oh, a single frame rate. And then you know, when you kind of start with something that's all over the place, like what's your like what's your single piece of advice and what's your biggest pitfall to avoid? That's a good question. I mean, what's kind of to get like on the larger picture, it's really understanding kind of what, how the different frame rates will react when, you know, in mm-hmm. certain time, like that just as a larger picture is understanding that, you know, if you, you're 
filming something at 30 frames per second, you want it slowed down to 20, 23.98, just what that'll kind of look like and what it'll feel like. And just know that, you know, you're each frame rate is going to react differently. Like for friendos to come back to that, a lot of it was shot. It was longer at this point, but I want to say maybe 240 frames per second and then sped up oh, because wow. it was synced. It was synced to the music. So it gave mm-hmm. this effect of, you know, just that felt really right and felt like it added energy to the piece. And I think it, it was just helpful to kind of know what the result would be. And then, and when we watch it, but as far as like actually working with it and making sure it works within Premiere, I think. One, it's, it's helpful to like, inter- like use the interpret footage, like option within Premiere because it kind of allows you to see it in the panel at the, in the same place that you'll see it on the sequence. If that makes sense, like you'll, you'll kind of be able to read it more legibly and it'll make more sense within the scope of, of what you're cutting. But otherwise, I mean, I think one pitfall is which is very tiny, but if you're speeding up something that's like 29.97 to 23.98, make sure you use the decimal points within the percentages because you won't realize <laughs> it. But towards the, like, toward, and this has been something that we I've only just learned by doing wrong. Like, you know, if, if it's, I can't think of specifics, but say I have to speed it up to 300.3%, that 0.3% will make a difference when you get to the end of the tape. It could slip, it could slip mm-hmm. sync wise. So it's just being very, very meticulous about the percentages yeah yeah we do a lot of like long long rolls for for snl sometimes just because of the time crunch on set too so like and in a lot of music videos some of the directors like to shoot those in slow-mo so we have slow-mo shots to play with but also they're doing it to sync sound so then that's you know that's where we're speeding it up and yeah occasionally if you're not careful about those decimal points once you get to the end of a track it's like way off so <laughs> this is a, a big reason why i'm thankful i don't uh, live in broadcast because i don't have to shoot in the decimal i'd be like 24 flat mm-hmm. that's <laughs> all you get thank you <laughs> yeah we actually we do typically also edit these pieces in 23.98 but then they are converted when they roll into the show to 29.97 but that happens beyond us through some hardware. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you, there's there's occasional like duplicate frames and stuff like that for broadcast. But, you know, for the filmic look and then for online, we like to make sure that they are shot in 2398 so that they look as good and like pristine as, as they can for for those platforms. And so, so. when you transcode transform, I guess, to you know, 29.97, is it? You're yeah. doing that because for broadcast that the standard is to to deliver in a in the 29.997. Yeah, frames. we export we export in 23.98 and send it down to Mike Poole and his team because they're also responsible for taking these pieces and then getting them set up to roll into the show. Mm-hmm. So he'll they'll take our final export and they'll take the mix that comes in separately and pair them and then they'll they'll do that the transfer over to 2997 for the tape machine and all, which is really cool. And for all the technical stuff for broadcast, we'll have another podcast (laughs) with Chris and Ryan tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. We'll dive that. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up here, I'd love to just share where folks can follow your work and your favorite comedy sketch moment of all time. I put a lot of my work on my Instagram at the.ryan.spears and also my portfolio is ryanspearfilm.com. Oh gosh, like favorite sketch moment. It's 
it's hard to pick a favorite. I do remember, I think more so than just being a moment that I liked a lot, but also a moment that I remember was I was still in high school when Dick Mm -hmm. in a Box came out. (laughs) And in that TV class, I was playing it and got in trouble for the explicit content of that sketch (laughs) uh, for showing it to other people. So that's definitely a memorable sketch sketch for me in that regard. (laughs) Classic. Yeah. How about you, Chris? I also have an Instagram. It's at Chris Solarius. And my website is csalerno.com where I, where I put some of my work, but I'd say, I, I mean, also I, I have been a fan of SNL for a little, a little while. So I think one more recent sketch that really got me was a papyrus sketch, which was, you know, it was, it was a pre-tape sketch from 10 years ago with Ryan Gosling and his commitment to the bit was so like Oscar worthy. <laughs> he gave such a dramatic performance that I remember watching it being like, blown away that this was just a, a sketch because of how the, serious he took it and how serious the, the production was of it. And the premise is so simple. It's just that the font from the Avatar title is Papyrus and this man exactly. being yeah, driven crazy about it. Brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Like, a, like an early most... 2000s psycho thriller. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, thank yeah, you so, so much. Fun coming for coming on and i hope we can have you back on to talk even more about your next emmy nominated project and it was truly a pleasure thank you so much yeah thanks guys thank you thank you so much it was great Thank you so much Ryan and Chris for joining us on the podcast i loved how this was just a case study of the the fact that if you're moving quickly, you you don't rise to the occasion, but you fall to your ability. And if you do the work to get there, like you will create great, great stuff. So yeah, I like their approach to kind of like fixing it themselves and troubleshooting themselves and kind of jumping on opportunities i think that 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 was you know they didn't have time to kind of go to stakeholders and be like do you like this what do you want to do they're just like we're going to do it and we're going to show you and and it's going to be fine and and living in an environment where the actors are stakeholders the writers are stakeholders you know you have lauren michaels you know watching over everything it's it's scary and and it's interesting that sometimes when you fall on in your instincts it's not always about talent or experience, I guess. Sorry, it's not always about experience. It's sometimes about talent. Mm-hmm. There we go. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, you like that innate talent comes out because you don't have time to overthink it or worry about it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Yara, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can get yeah, more no film at nofilmschool.com and you can follow us on socials at nofilmschool. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. You can watch SNL on hulu and on mm-hmm. live tv when we're not in a strike <laughs> yeah and i but when i when i was prepping for this interview i watched uh a movie so if you if you can't get snl now live which you can't and you don't want to go back to older seasons you can always watch other things that have former snl cast what members did you watch? i watched blues brothers uh blues brothers blues brothers Classic. and it was young dan Aykroyd and uh, john belushi jim belushi Jim John, one of the blue sheets. Somebody would tell us. 
The shorter Belushi. The shorter Belushi. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and uh, it was great. It was great. It was, it was did great. it bring you back? John Belushi. There we go. It did. I, I remember seeing it a long time ago and uh, man, it looked different than I remember it, you know? Yeah. Looked very different. But I, I, I love the blues. I love jazz. And I think that movie or that duo of movies really made me kind of fall in love with it when I was younger. Aww, I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's another time. Another podcast. Another time, another, another podcast, another, yeah. <laughs> along with our broadcast yeah. podcast, which we right. should do at some point. Got a full schedule coming I up. I know, I know. Well, thank you. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners. Uh, email us, podcast at nofilmschool.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and have a good one. Yeah.